Welcome back to Table Talk, discussions of church, theology, and culture. My name's Andrew Hall. I'm the lead pastor here at CBC Ilderton. Again, today I have my good friend Ian Valancourt joining me. Last time we spent some time discussing his book, The Dawning of Redemption, and trying to understand a little bit about how the Old Testament story begins with the uh, with the creation of all things, the fall of humanity, and then God's plan of redemption. Uh, today, we want to take a look at the book of Psalms. Uh, Ian, you um, you have specialized in the Psalms, and you've probably spent many, many, many hours, more than most people have ever spent in the book of Psalms. What drew you to the book of Psalms? Uh, just the beauty of it and the and the heart level worship, like the un, unchecked emotive worship of Yahweh directly. And I, I just love, I love the book. So when I was doing my PhD, had to pick something to write my dissertation on. I was immediately drawn to Psalms. So when I did my coursework, comprehensive exams, I was trying to find a way to work Psalms in. Like I took a course in uh, John issues and Johannine mm. studies. And, and um, I wrote on the use of Psalm 118 in the gospel of John and just kind of finding my bearings. And um, one person called it probing, but just looking at, just learning the field of Psalm studies and and kind of narrowing my focus toward the dissertation. I, I figured if I was going to spend a whole year and a half writing a, a high academic piece I wanted to love it and I wanted it to be useful for the church. So now you've got a book coming out with InterVarsity Press called Treasuring the Psalms How to Read the Songs That Shape the Soul of the Church. When we think of the Psalms, uh, why would we want to treasure them? Uh, just because of what I said, because they're so beautiful and because they're Holy Spirit inspired. You, th- you think of our, our the songs we sing on Sunday morning and and they're theologically true and accurate, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully yeah, your church, <laughs> but uh, hopefully they're theologically true and accurate. But um, think of the Psalms that they began their life as responses of worshipers to Yahweh, to God. But somewhere along the line, they were also recognized as God's word for his people. So they're, they're inspired and they're inerrant and they're true. Um, so the book of Psalms has 150 Holy Spirit inspired poems and they're originally written in Hebrew, but they, they've shaped the singing, the praying and the theology of God's people for thousands of years. So how can you not love that? How can that not be a treasure? So people, um, when, when you, you've been a pastor, um, when, when you go and visit people and you ask them, is there something I could read to you? They'll often say, oh, I'd love to have Psalm 23. Yeah. Uh, there'll be some sort of Psalm that they'll want you to read. Um, I, I know that Calvin, you've, you've got this in your book title. Calvin called it um, the soul. The anatomy uh, of all the The anatomy of the soul. Yes. Yeah. And, and so they, the Psalms seem to speak to us because they're, I think, poetic and they speak uh, a language of the Bible that resonates with us. Um, so when, when we're thinking about the poetry of the Psalms, uh, it, how, how, how did it come to be that we've got all these Psalms that are 
they're all put together in a certain way. What could we take just a, a couple minutes and talk about how how this anatomy of of the soul actually speaks to us? But it's actually speaking to the anatomy of God's redemption too. Yeah. So the the Psalms began their life as individual poems. So David is you know seventy three or four of the Psalms were written by David and he's writing them for temple worship. And he's giving them to Asaph for the choir director, you know, that little, yeah. that little note at the beginning. And they're specifically written for God's people in temple worship or tabernacle worship in David's lifetime to sing together. And um, are you asking about the shape of the book or are you yeah. asking about, yeah, okay. Let's think about, I, I know the shape of the book is very important because we've got these individual songs that have been collected for worship but they've been put together in a certain way. It's not haphazard or random. Yeah, well, some would say it is. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but you and I would not. No, neither one of us would. And when I was starting um, my doctoral work, I heard, like, I, I remember having a conversation with a friend, John Skrenek, who now teaches at Oxford. So I'm, you know, by association, I know a smart guy. <laughs> um, but I, I remember him telling me about Gerald Wilson's dissertation on, um, the editing of the Hebrew Psalter. And I'd never heard of it before at the time. And so I checked it out of the library and I, I remember just being absolutely riveted by this doctoral dissertation that was published in 1985, SBL Press. And, um, but Wilson was arguing, and, and since I've learned that many throughout history have argued at some level for the Psalms aren't a haphazardly put together book. You know, the Augustine said yeah. the... Um, the order of the Psalms, which which seems to me to contain a secret of great mystery, has yeah. not yet been revealed to me. So Augustine, you know, all those years ago in the three hundreds, is 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 saying that the Psalms were purposefully put together. Even if I don't understand everything about how they're put together, there's something to that order. It's not just a haphazard thing. So uh, you know, talking to John Skrenek, hearing the Augustine quote, got me reading some academic stuff and got me reading the book of Psalms through that lens and thinking, is there a flow? And O. Palmer Robertson has written a book, mm -hmm. The Flow of the Psalms, Discovering Their Structure and Theology, I think is the, uh, is that the right title? Yeah. Okay. And um, so he's kind of exploring the, the, the overall shape of the book. So that's one person that's done a contribution to it. And um, so anyway, I, I wrote my dissertation on specifically the portrayal of the savior in book five. Um, but it, it got me kind of looking at this macro structure. Mm -hmm. And so the argument kind of goes something like this, that the Holy Spirit inspired the poet to write this composition, but the Holy Spirit was also sovereign over and in inspiring this collection being formed into a book. Mm -hmm. And there's a process that happened. Some of it's a mystery. We don't know, you know, it's likely that the Psalms of Ascent were associated with one another early and, you know, put together for a certain reason. Um, and it's, it's likely that, you know, this, we could say it's likely that dot, 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 but we don't know. But ultimately um, the Holy Spirit, his inspiration of the, the Psalms were extended beyond just the individual composition to the shape of the book as a whole. And so that when we look at the book as a whole, it's more than the sum of its parts. And, mm. and when we see the flow of the Psalms, uh, to, to borrow Robertson's language there, it's, it's, um, 
it's even more than the original poet of the individual composition would have comprehended. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you got psalm, a psalm written by Moses, was that 1400s yep. BC, and you've got psalms that lament the, um, the exile. And you, you probably got about a thousand year span of 800 to a thousand year span of writing. Yeah. But the, the same Holy Spirit who inspired Moses inspired the latter ones, and he knew the end from the beginning, and he knew the shape. So ultimately, the argument goes that the Psalms, although you've got these individual com- compositions, they narrate a, lo- a larger story. Right. So I've often uh, compared the Psalms and the way that they've been put together to individual hymns in a hymnal. Sure. So you've got all these individual compositions. They've been put together. They've been collected into an order. Songs about God, the Son, the Bible, redemption, uh, and and they begin the like a hymnal. It tells a story from beginning to end, but it wasn't the original intention of the person writing the hymn that it would fit at that spot mm-hmm. in the hymnal. So it was very similar in that way, isn't it? Yeah, except um, I'd even like I like hymnal in a sense because it's big. There's lots, but the hymnals put all the ones about God in one spot and all the ones about right. this in another spot. I, I like even a worship service because a good worship mm. leader, they're kind of looking for the flow right. leading into a sermon and then responding to a sermon. And so they, they, take these comp, they, they take these songs that weren't written in relation to one another and see, okay, I'm not musical at all. Like I don't, like my kids will tell you it's, it's <laughs> quite offensive when I sing except for God. And, but someone who knows music will be able to say, okay, this slow one fits here beside this fast one. And this theme ties the two together mm-hmm. and it's going to kind of elevate us to, and then prepare us for Andrew's sermon on Sunday or whomever's preaching. So um, that's a little bit on a 150 level. That's kind of what the book of Psalms is doing. So now Luther called the book of Psalms a little Bible. Yeah. Now, why would he call it a little Bible? Or maybe he was speaking more profoundly than he recognized. Why, why, might, why might we call it a little Bible? Well, I, I think he was really clear in the quote. I have the quote in the introduction of the book, but he was saying that all the themes in the Bible are contained in the Psalms. Yeah. And so it's a little Bible because all the different themes in the Bible about redemption, about God, about his holiness, about living in a fallen world, uh, about repentance, all of these different themes are all contained in the book of Psalms. And so in a sense, it's it's a little Bible. I, I, I think that's just beautiful. And, and um, it complements Calvin's an anatomy of all the yeah. parts of the soul. Calvin's saying it's all the emotions you could possibly experience, teaching us to take those to God. Yes. And Luther's saying all the theology the Bible teaches is there. And as a side note, I like to say, would the people writing the songs we sing at church be accused of writing a little Bible? Hmm. And if so, praise God, let's let their tribe increase. So what is this story of the Psalms then? We've got Psalms of David. He's writing primarily book one. We've got this emphasis on Davidic Psalms. There's lots of uh, the language of Yahweh, uh, the the personal name of God. We we get into book two, and the name Elohim seems to be predominant. And by book three, we're into these dirge songs that just feel heavy. 
by book four, it seems to be lightning. And by book five, there's tremendous hope and it ends with praise. So what's happening in this book that there's this movement? Yeah. So um, you mentioned David and Davidic Psalms occur throughout. You got a cluster at the beginning of book five, you know, book five, Psalm 107 to 150, cluster at the beginning, cluster at the end, but they are heavily you know, that first book, there's lots of Davidic Psalms. Yeah. So the the basic, you know, in chapter four of the book, I think it is treasuring the Psalms. I trace the broad theme. Chapter three, I say Psalms one and two are a kind of a gateway yeah. to the book. I didn't make up that language. Uh, people smarter than me did. <laughs> and I learned it from others. But, you know, Psalm one, you've got this theme of, of um, you've sorry. Got, you've got the word. Yeah. You got the the, Torah. the word of the Torah of God, the instruction of Yahweh, yeah. and and Psalm two. You've got the 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 anointed King as yeah. the Son of Yahweh, and you've got that kind of dual entry into the life yeah. of praise, if we want to use Calvin's language. And then in Book One, you know, you you get out of that intro and you get into to Psalm three, and you've you've got this you got this promise from Psalms one and two that if if you are walking, um in step with the instruction of Yahweh, you will be blessed. Yes. And then you get into Psalm three and it's this thud. It's a lament. It's a lament because uh, David, the psalmist is being pursued by his son, Absalom, which means father of Shalom. Yes. And Absalom's trying to kill David. Right. And then that kind of is a trigger. That whole scene is a trigger to kind of take our minds. Okay, what was going on there? And that's 2 Samuel 13 to 18, or I think around then anyway. And oh yeah, from David's sin with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11, and then his repentance in 2 Samuel 12, and Nathan the prophet says to him, there's gonna be strife in your house as a result of this sin. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the consequences. So, there's so much going on there that basically um, on the one level, Psalm three, things are not the way they are meant to be. And David's lamenting. Right. But that link with second Samuel and reminding us what's going on and reminds us David's not the perfectly righteous King that Psalm one and two kind of. We're longing for that. We're expecting that. Making us long for yep. and Psalm three says, but he's not the one yet. Yeah. And although he is the greatest king in the entire Old Testament, um, Bruce Waltke has this beautiful line about how the royal Psalms in the book of Psalms, um, we get our hopes up. There's yeah. this beautiful picture of the king, but then you got the actual kings in, in Judah. And it's like a, it's like a, the, the hymns are like royal robes and the, the, royal, the royal Psalms are like royal robes. And so they, they, they're placed on the shoulders of this next king and his shoulders prove too, too narrow and the, the robe falls off. Mm-hmm. And time after time again, throughout the Old Testament, none of the kings live up to this awesome ideal of the Royal Psalms until Jesus comes and he is, he is the ultimate king. So anyway, uh, but book one as a whole, you've got these tears of weeping David. Yeah. You know, back to, you got the gateway and then you got the tears of weeping David as he reigns in tension. He's not the perfectly righteous king promised. There's, there's, there's gotta be something more and, and he's reigning in tension, but he's also weeping and he's teaching us as sinful people, how to take our tears to God. And then book two kind of continues that theme with some Absalom songs too. 
And um, I'm not going to touch the God versus Yahweh language. No one knows why. <laughs> There's no satisfying answer anyway that I've read. Um, but then book three starts in Psalm 73 to 89, sorry. And the theme there is, is the fall of Jerusalem, lamenting right. the exile. Right. And some of the Psalms were likely written on other occasions, but they were reappropriated just like on Sunday morning, someone might've written a song for a certain occasion and we reappropriate it for our yeah. worship on Easter or whenever, yeah. or a regular uh, Sunday. But um, some of them were written specifically for like Psalm 88 and Psalm 89 were written specifically for, but you've got this kind of focus on exile yeah. and loss of kingship. And then book four, um, it begins with a Psalm of Moses in Psalm yeah. 90. And that's Lord, just, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. All generations. And which is cr- tremendously hopeful, isn't it? After it is. if, if Jerusalem is destroyed, if the temple is destroyed, you go all the way back to Moses and you hear the refrain, Lord, you've always been our dwelling place. Throughout yeah. generations before mountains were formed. And it also, the, the fact that da- there's no king on David's throne anymore after the exile but the, the mention of Moses' name, much less a psalm by him, reminds us the covenant went back way before Moses, mm-hmm. uh, way, way before David to Moses right. and, and before him even. And so there's that, but then there's this line, a thousand in your days in, are like a day in your sight. Yeah. A thousand years are like a day in your sight. So there's this, okay, it feels like forever, but it's like a day in your sight. There's, there's hope. And then through, and book four is where we get the Yahweh reigns Psalms. Mm-hmm. And so you might say Yahweh reigns even when David does not. Hmm. Even when there's no king on David's throne, Yahweh is reigning. And then book five, 107 to, you know, book four ends with a cry of exiles for deliverance yeah. at the end of 106. And then 107 begins book five with, and he's gathered them. Yes. And give thanks, um, you know, give thanks for his chesed endures forever. Yeah. Uh, give thanks to Yahweh for he is good for his chesed endures forever. And you've got this, you know, and he's gathered them from east, west, north, south. And, and this is this total gathering that's taken place. And then in book five, not only is there that hope of return from exile, but then you've got this portrait that be- begins being painted of a, of a savior to come who's better, bigger and better than David. Mm. And I I call it in the book, the return of a a new and better David. And he's not merely a king, you know, between Psalms 110 and 118, he's a prophet, priest, and a king. And you can flesh that out by reading it (laughs) more, uh, the book. Um, But, and that just kind of climaxes at the end with these five Psalms at the very end of the book of, of praise. Yeah but the hope is of ultimately a Messiah who's going to be prophet, priest, and king. Does, does he sound familiar to you? Yeah, this yeah, sounds very, very familiar. Yeah, it's, 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 it's ultimately um, in Jesus, fulfilled yeah. by Jesus, right? Let's, let's quickly touch on a couple of quick things. Um, first, uh, there's these little lines before the Psalms begin, and a lot of people don't read them. Uh, oh, yeah. And uh, so maybe, could you just speak? Like, why are those, why are those there? Did, did somebody add them? Like, what's going on? Like, I know in my Bible, I've got titles, but what are these superscriptions? Yeah, okay. So people call them superscriptions or Psalm titles. 
Um, and we need to not confuse those with the editor of our English Bible putting a theme in. Right. So, you know, you might have a, a theme of, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. Right. It's in a dark font yeah, there. That's, but then that's the publisher. Yeah. But then you've got these, usually in small caps, kind yeah. of before verse one, and um, a Psalm of David, when he, blah, 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 when Absalom's son was pursuing, this kind of thing, or a, of David, a Psalm, or for the choir director of David, a Psalm. These are the superscriptions. Yeah. And those are ancient. We have zero manuscripts of the Psalms with, without superscriptions. Hmm. Every single manuscript we possess have superscriptions. Dead Sea Scroll Psalms have superscriptions. And it's a bigger it's a bigger and more complicated topic. It's a lot we could say about the sure. superscriptions, but the gist of it is this, and, and through my study and through kind of wrestling with it, um, it's I'm convinced that they're part of the essence of the psalm, and most often by the original poet. Well, they're certainly or, giving us a context early, to that yeah. psalm. psalm aren't yeah, they? they're they're meant to be. They're the lens through which the psalm is meant to be read. Right. So if the superscription is simply of David, well, I'm supposed to read this psalm as the voice of David. Mm. And who's David? He's in a sense he's like me because he's a person who lives in a fallen world, but he's also more than just like me because he's the anointed king over God's people. He's the covenant head. So he's more like Jesus than like me, but he is a both. And so as I'm reading the Psalm, I've got both of those levels of, of reading going on. And you got the, the, the so-called historical superscription. Psalm 51 is written about David's adultery with Bathsheba in response to it. And um, two things I'll say about that. Um, there's, a, there's a book called Psalm and Story. Hmm. And it's a, it's a doctoral dissertation. Um, James Watts, I believe is the author, um, wrote it under Christopher Seitz at St. Andrews. And he makes the point that you've got in Hebrew narrative, Hebrew story, you've got these pauses where Psalms are inserted. So Exodus 15, the song of the sea, um, you know, the song of Moses near the end of Deuteronomy, um, the Psalm of Jonah, Jonah 2. And so you've got these narrative stories being narrated and then you got a Psalm inserted. Mm. And Watts makes the point that, um, throughout his study, kind of analyzing why are these inserted? Well, in Hebrew narrative, it's almost never telling what's going on in the inner life of the people. It's describing it. But if you want to talk about the inner life of someone, you switch modes and go to poetry. Okay. And so the, the historical Psalms act like that a little bit. Is, you know, my colleague at Heritage, Dave Barker, has got two little books on the historical Psalms. The, the, the Psalms uh, that are written about historical occasions where you got these historical superscriptions and he kind of looks at the Psalm through the lens of the story in Samuel. And so that, that's the first thing I'll say is that um, the titles are meant to take us there and kind of here's the context, but it's also a bit of an organizing principle. You can see, okay, there's a cluster of Davidic Psalms at the beginning of book five and a cluster of Davidic Psalms at the end of book five. And there's something to that as well. So we're meant to pay attention to those. Mm -hmm. There, uh, One little kind of bonus thing I'll say is that when we read in our English Bibles, the superscription is before verse one, 
But if you get a Hebrew Bible, the superscription is verse one. Right. If it's an ultra short superscription, like of David, a Psalm, it's the first part of verse one. But if it's a long superscription, the verses are often different in English because the entirety of verse one is the superscription. And then what we have as verse one is actually actually verse verse two two in in Hebrew. Hebrew. And in the case of Psalm 51, verses one and two are superscription in Hebrew. Uh And verse three is what we have as verse one in our English Bible. So the Hebrew is... And you can look at the Dead Sea Scrolls. You can go online. You don't even need to know Hebrew. Go online and Google search Dead Sea Psalm Scroll. And, and what you notice is the beginnings of the Psalms look exactly the same as the rest of the Psalm. They're not set off in a different font. They're not in small caps. You don't even know, you need to know Hebrew to see that. And you know a little bit of Hebrew and you can pick out a Ludavid of David and like, oh, that's a part of the, of the Psalm. Mm. That's not a preface. That's not kind of this editor's note. So anyway, there's lots more I could say on that, but I'd say it's important to consider the superscriptions. It's amazing because if every word is inspired by God, then it matters. Yeah, that's uh, right. And so that that matters. One other little word then that I want to get at is this word selah. See that there and people scratch their heads. What would you say to someone when they see the word selah? Uh, well, there's lots of different ones that ultimately we don't ultimately know what some of these musical or liturgical terms mean. And funny little story, one of my professors uh, during the PhD, Christopher Seitz, he used to teach at Yale. And um, he heard, you know, the new revised standard version was being translated. And, um, you know, one of his colleagues was heading up that whole project at Yale. And, and someone came to him and, and said, you know, you've got all these notes, um, the meaning of the Hebrew is uncertain or probably a musical or liturgical term can't you get your best people on this? And he's just like scratching his head. Like we have our best people on this. It's, you know, this is an ancient language. It's, it's no longer spoken. Like modern Hebrew is different. Yeah. It's no longer spoken. It's a dead language. And it's amazing that scholars have pieced together and it's been so well-preserved, but there's the odd little thing we're not sure. And the musical and liturgical terms are, are some of those. People think sila is some sort of pause. Right. You know, you see people at their little cottage and they put sila over the door. Right. And <laughs> maybe it means that. Maybe it means something violent. <laughs> I hope your cottage isn't like that, but. <laughs> well, and we've got getteth and other terms. Yeah, that's we, right. We just scratch We just don't know. That. And So how, how would you tell someone to, to read those? I just read them. I, I, I read the silas and I don't know what it means. Where I read the getteths, you know, and yeah. on the getteth. And it's probably some sort of string because it, it reminds me that it, it, was, it was written for singing. Right. And it was written for congregational worship. And even if I don't know what it means, I know that it means something. And I also know, um, you know, just even that little reminder that this is for congregational worship. And that's a, this is a part of the con- composition. Uh, as we uh, just wrap up, we've gone a little bit longer than we normally do, but um, when... Uh, I'll put you on the spot here. If oh if you think about um, modern Christian worship, uh, just generically speaking, 
Uh, what do you think the Psalms could teach the church today if we were to reflect deeply on it? Well, if Calvin called the Psalms an anatomy of all the parts of the soul, and the the Psalms were the songbook of God's people for thousands of years, and many churches today still sing the Psalms. I I think there's something been lost by not. Mm -hmm. And um, but I I certainly think we should be writing songs and singing. You know, I, I praise God for the Gettys. I praise God for so many others, you know, Phil Wickham and other songwriters. Um, but what are the themes and emphases of the Psalms? And do we have that same balance of themes and emphases in our, in our worship services on Sundays? And I think the glaring difference would be Psalms of lament, hmm. tears. And uh, Christians are right to sing and and sing joyful joy-filled songs pray joy-filled prayers and maybe the balance is different in the new testament a little bit because jesus has come he's fulfilled the old testament hope and we have so much but we still live in a fallen world yeah and uh, you know one author makes a point if all we ever sing are happy clappy songs and all we ever hear prayed from the pulpit our triumphant prayers, then the person in the pew is implicitly learning that I can't take my tears to God. Mm. And in the Psalms of lament, a third of the Psalms are lament Psalms, a third of them. And so what if it's only 10% of our worship service? That'd be fine. But we Mm. hardly ever have tears songs in our worship service. You know, I thank God for songs like Lord from Sorrows Deep I Call, you know, um, Matt Boswell, Matt Papa, um, awesome. There's others as well, but may their tribe increase. Like we need to learn to sing our tears. We need as pastors to model praying our tears. And so Sunday morning ought not to be only upbeat all the time because I don't want to, I don't want that person that's you know, just come from the hospital bed and going back to the hospital bed of their spouse of 60 years and they're about to say goodbye. I don't want them to say, but I can't go to God with this. Yeah. Even though they never vocalize it, you know, verbalize it. They just don't know how because they've never had it modeled. So anyway, that's... Yeah, there's room for the depressed Christian, isn't there? Yeah. In the Psalms. And the weeping the Christian. God. Yeah, the weeping Christian. The weeping and the come as you are Christian. Hmm. God knows our heart to begin with. There's a directness in the language in the Psalms that, you know, as a as a polite Canadian that I found that I find hard sometimes, but maybe I find it hard because I'm wrong, <laughs> and the Psalm kind of takes me by the hand and teaches me how to approach God, mm-hmm. um, where I'm at. So the book is Treasuring the Psalms: How to Read the Songs That Shape the Soul of the Church. When's it coming out, Ian? Uh, well, it is shipping now. Um, we're recording this early July, 2023. It's shipping now from the IV InterVarsity Press warehouse. So ivpress.com, search um, Treasuring the Psalms and you'll find it and it's shipping now. But the official marketing release is August 15th. And so that's when booksellers, Amazon and others will start 
shipping it out. I'll say I've read uh, I read the manuscript to this as well. I'm really excited about it. I think it'll be a fantastic book. Ian, thanks for joining us for these two podcasts. And uh, if you're interested, you can uh, check out Ian Valencourt's work on uh, online treasuring the Psalms. In the last podcast, we were discussing the dawning of redemption. Uh, Ian, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. God bless. Okay, God bless, brother.